Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, it's Mike and Davina, and welcome to another episode of the Master Your Mix podcast. I'm super stoked that you're here today. Today I'm chatting with Dan Broadbeck, who is an amazing engineer out of London, Ontario, Canada. He actually, in 2010, won the Juno Award for Recording Engineer of the Year, which, if you're not familiar with the Juno Award, it's basically the Canadian equivalent of the Grammy. So he won that for the Best Recording Engineer of the Year in 2010 for his work with Dolores O'Riordan from the Cranberries. He's also done a bunch of great work for bands such as Ivory Hours, he's worked with Landon Pig, the Gandarvas, and a whole bunch more. He was an owner at Emac Studios, which is a great room as well. And these days, he's actually shifted a little bit towards teaching. He's still doing a lot of production work, but now he's a program coordinator at Fanshawe College for their music industry arts program, where he teaches music production. And you could tell throughout this interview that he's got that teacher side of his personality, because he shares a lot of really great advice. And in this chat, we have a great conversation about building trust with artists in the studio, and how to be confident so that you can win over the artists right away, gain their trust, and keep them as clients as well. We also talk about how to know what an artist is looking for in their final mix before you've even started the mix. He also shares some really great tips on learning your monitoring setup and some things that you could do in order to make sure that you fully understand that what's coming out of your monitors is going to translate onto other sets of speakers. And he also discusses how all you really need to do is just learn how to listen to your monitors at a couple different levels so that you can start to get mixes that are very accurate. You can get the low end right, the top end right, just really get mixes that make sense and that translate onto different sets of speakers. So I think he shares a lot of really great wisdom in this interview, and I'm really excited for you to learn from it. So let's jump into that interview. Dan, thanks for being on here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So for people who might not be familiar with who you are, can you give us a little bit of background on how you got started and what you do? Yeah. Um, geez, this is the 30th year I've made music professionally. So um, That's awesome. It's, uh, I started professionally when I was 19. So uh, pretty early, pretty young, um, and I owned and built my own recording studio at the time in London uh, called uh, DB Studios, ran that for almost 10 years. And that was a little difficult being the engineer, producer, uh, bookkeeper, janitor, guitar player, everything at the, all at the same time. So in 2000, I um, merged with uh, another studio in the city called Emac with uh, two guys I had known for a long time. Um, and uh, they had a quite like a successful studio for a bunch of years, but they kind of wanted to branch out a little bit and different clientele. So I was doing almost, well, actually exclusively music work. So it kind of worked out and I went over there and um, over the course of a bunch of years, I've done um, a bunch of different, like a fairly large variety of kinds of music, I guess um, anything from um, like folk music, um, a, a Juno nominated record actually in roots folk and, a band called the Gandarvas very, very early in my career that did well and was Juno nominated and stuff. So those guys are uh, great. I love them. Yeah, I know. Really cool band actually. And I would think I was 26 or something when I, when I did that crazy. And then, um, uh, a bunch of, uh, records for, uh, I, I ended up getting hooked up with RCA records, um, out of New York for quite a while, early two thousands and did a few records for them. And then things just, you know, it's all word of mouth and somebody tells somebody and tell somebody else. And then, 
hooked up with Dolores O'Riordan, the, the singer from the Irish band, the Cranberries. And mm-hmm. uh, that um, was basically a 13 year gig. It was supposed to be three days. What? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, um, yeah. On one record or just like? No, uh, two records and various stuff, soundtrack work, like anything she needed me for, for about that length of time. So she's, she was a very successful artist. So it was the kind of thing that um, I was also teaching during that time, but for part-time for a while. So it was a little bit of that. And then having the studio and working for her was pretty full. So I did lots of other projects too, but um, uh, I don't work for her anymore. So it's um, branching out and doing a lot more things now. But yeah, that was, which led me to the, I won a Juno award in, in, 2010 for my work with her for um that's amazing uh, engineer of the year so that's that's 30 years in a nutshell but (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing and you are a musician yourself too right guitar player primarily yeah yeah and uh how do you feel that your ability to play an instrument has had an impact on the work you're doing oh to me it's everything it's an extension like uh you know i've been engineer and producer and i guess sort of songwriter and guitar player that's that you know some people would look at me as a producer first. And depending on who you talk to, I'm an engineer and mixer, depending on what I've done for them. But really it all stemmed from me playing guitar first because I just needed them. When I was a kid, I started recording at about 14 with a, a four track and, and the, I just needed to be able to play all the instruments at once and play on top of stuff and put stuff together. So that was always an interesting thing to me. So um, the engineering thing was just a means for me to get stuff recorded. So it's, um, I, I came by it fairly naturally, like the guitar playing. So it's, but when I'm, when I, even when I'm mixing, it's still all musical to me. So, and even when I teach recording engineering, it's all about music. If it connects, if it doesn't connect to music, it, there's no reason for me to either do it or talk about it. So it's, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I don't come at it from a technical perspective, even though I do, it's there, but I don't think like that. It always is an emotion or, um, you know, bringing an instrument out for a reason, it's an emotional reason or a song reason, not really anything to do with anything frequency wise or technical so much, even though that's there. So, um, even when I'm playing a part, I'm thinking of the mix or if I'm mixing a part, I'm thinking about the guitar part or whatever. So it's all kind of connected to me. But I think that's important to be analyzing it from that angle, right? Like kind of producing it as you're writing it and knowing where you want things to be in the stereo spectrum and all that stuff. And it just helps yeah. you get through the sessions a lot easier and, and mixes and all that kind of stuff. So, Well, yeah, because you're thinking um, arrangement, which is production, which mm. is mixing. So it's, it's, it's all a connection to me. So if I'm thinking about laying down a guitar part, it's because it fills some sort of part musically and maybe sonically anyways. So uh, um, there's a lot of the stuff I produce, I am playing guitar on it. So um, it's one of the things I would be known for, I guess, with some people would be that I would – help in producing and mixing and engineering. I'm also going to be possibly playing stuff that, that av- at least that availability is there. And I did that with Dolores, the cranberry singer for a long time. It got to the point where she was just, you know, she would come up with a very basic song idea and then just leave for a bit. And I would put everything together. So, which at first it was just a small job and it kind of, kind of grew. So, um, I am kind of known, I guess, if that's a good enough <laughs> word, um, for doing, you know, playing stuff as well, you know, if need be. So, well, that says something about you and and the amount of trust people have in you. Yeah. Which, you know, that's part of the, um, that's part of the game. I guess if you want to call it, that is, um, trust, um, you you don't have very long to gain that. So, um, if, 
it's really one of the biggest things I think, including mixing and engineering. I mean, you're putting somebody else in control of what your song's going to sound like, uh, even if they're just engineering or mixing it, not producing it. That's like, that's a big thing. So if you realize that before you ever even start working with somebody, um, and always have that in your head to me, that's first. Like if, if I have, if I can gain somebody's trust then they're going to do something musically that they're not embarrassed to do, um, you know, they might do something alone or in the car or in the shower kind of thing. Cause nobody's around, but you need to be just as comfortable. They need to be just as comfortable with you. So you can, they'll do those strange things in a studio, not be embarrassed yeah. in front of you. So it's almost like you're not there. So trust is sort of everything really. So how do you, how do you go about that? Like, do you, is this just your natural charm that, or <laughs> honest question? It, it, I, I never used to be able to, you know, before I taught people, I didn't, I didn't even know I was doing these things. So, and having to kind of analyze it, if you want to put it that way, and um, in order to teach people how to gain people's trust, I, I kind of like to alleviate any potential conflicts or problems before they are even going to happen because they're going to happen. So if I can get rid of maybe 80% of them before they exist, then when the odd things or least conflicts come, come up, we can deal with those things very easily. Um, making people comfortable People always talk about vibe mm-hmm. and, you know, in a studio or this room has a lot of vibe. And to me, that's crap. That comes from people. So if the vibe comes from the people you're in the room with. So I don't care if I'm recording at a house or a multimillion dollar studio or a, a room with fluorescent lights in it. It doesn't make a difference to me. The people create the vibe. So I'm always thinking like from the first time I meet a person, um, saying something, I don't want to say something that's going to put them off. Um, I want them comfortable. I want them to understand that it's not my record. It's theirs. And whether we're going to use every idea or not, we're going to listen to each other. And they're going to want to listen to what my ideas are. And I'm going to listen to what their ideas are. And we're going to try everything. Um, And, you know, you might not use every idea, um, but at least you've explored everything. And um, it's your personality. It's how open you are or how confident you are. um, And, uh, this has come up before where I don't generally play people their vocal t- takes back. <laughs> and it didn't dawn on me until I was teaching this. So speaking of trust, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's hard to gain that. But uh, when you do, you, you should be able to have that forever if you don't do something to betray that. Of so, um, you know, I have had to say to people before that I just worked with for the first time, you're, you're just going to have to trust me knowing that you've got pretty much one chance to put together a vocal comp that comes back to them better than they ever thought they ever sang it. Cause it's your job to understand exactly what they're con- trying to convey as the vocalist or the instrumentalist. So if you just give them something back, that's technically correct, but is not what they want, you've already lost them. So you really have to understand what they're looking for and be, um, you know, to the point where it's almost like I'm the one that's singing it. So if, if this was my voice, what would I do to this? And, um, it's a difficult thing because everybody's got their own method and the, their own way of speaking. So students have asked me before, what, what do you say? Or like, what lines do you use or sort of almost gimmicks? And, and they aren't, it, you're actually being honest with somebody, but positive and supportive. Um, and everybody has a different way to do that. So if I gave somebody like things to say or words to use, or it's fake. So it, you come across like you're, um, 
lying to them. Yeah. <laughs> and there are times when you might be stretching the truth a little and <laughs> in order for them to say, to get what they want, which is what you want too, which is a great record or a great performance or a great mix or whatever it is. So it's difficult to say what it is, but it's, it's definitely confidence. Um, uh, no different than if you went to somebody to get, you know, a leaky basement fixed and they come over and they're like, ah, geez, man, I don't know. That's, uh, that could be, uh, you know, you're, and you'd feel uncomfortable with that person when somebody comes in and says, um, if they've never, they don't quite know what it is, but don't worry about it. Regardless of what it is, I'm going to be able to take care of this. You, you, you instantly think, oh, okay, I'm in good hands with this person. If, you know, you went to a doctor and they said, whoa, that's weird. I've never seen one of those before. <laughs> <laughs> you never want that. <laughs> we're not saving lives or anything. What we're doing is completely unimportant in reality. I mean, it's important to, to the person, but it's, you're, it's not life-saving. So, but there is that you're putting your, your trust in somebody. So if they don't, if you don't feel that, that you're in the right hands, um, you're going to, it's going to be a difficult time getting that trust, I think. So, um, I don't think I was always good at it. Um, I know I am now, but it took a long, long time for, and it's not a line you say or a thing you do. You gain confidence the more you do this. And, um, when you have confidence in yourself and not an arrogance, just a confidence to know that I can pull this off. And sometimes it's a little false. It really is. Like sometimes you're pretending you're, you can pull everything off or you're confident and you say yes to something and you go, then you later figure out, okay, how the hell am I going to do this? But they can never see that you're a slightly uncomfortable. Actually, Jack Joseph Puig, very famous mixed engineer guy. And he's sort of a hero of mine. He mixed a record for me. She's uh, 2001, I think. And, um, as the producer, it was my job to tell a guy that I looked up to like that, what I wanted. And that's, that's terrifying <laughs> to be honest. But he said that to me, which was body language, um, the way you carry yourself. He's seen huge, huge producers sitting in a room that he can tell are losing the band because of body language. They look tense. They look like they don't know what they're doing and they may, but they don't look confident and they don't, you know, it, it's a, uh, it was a, I mean, you learn a lot of things like that from people along the way and these little tidbits of things yeah. they tell you and you start being very self-conscious of things you say and the way you carry yourself and how you act around people. And that if they just feel comfortable, you can tell when they leave a room, if they've met you for the first time, if it's going to work out, like they'll leave and they're, they're, you, you know, they just left and went, wow, this is going to be great. You know that like, mm -hmm. cause it felt really well just to, you know, you're not selling yourself, but you kind of. Are. Kind of, are. Yeah. of course you are, but not in a, and it's, there's nothing wrong with it. You're just trying to get, gain their confidence because ultimately you want what they want, you know, very long answer to a short question, but no, but I think you gave a lot of really good insight there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move over a little bit more to like some technical stuff then. Mm -hmm. What's your studio setup like these days? I mix out of my house. So, okay. um, even though I, you have Emac? Um, I don't have Emac anymore. Oh, you don't? Okay. No, I actually haven't been a studio owner, like a commercial studio, since 2008. Oh, no way. So um, it, it was an, a, a very friendly split. I just didn't want to – I actually never wanted to own a recording studio, to be totally <laughs> honest, even though for 18 years I owned two. <laughs> That's like the dream of every engineer, it seems, right? So. It's like I wanted the gear and I wanted to, a place to work out of and I wanted the stuff, but I didn't want to run a business where other people came in and – you tried to book the studio out. So 
the best the studio was for me when it was projects that I was doing that I was hired to do. Um, when I didn't really like it was when you're trying to market a recording studio um, for other people to come in and use. It's not really where I ever wanted to be. But um, so um, when I kind of concentrated on myself as a freelance person, and I still do a lot of work out of Emacs. So um, the freedom to do any work anywhere I wanted um, was never an issue, even when I owned Emac. I did lots of work outside of there if the artist wanted to do that. Um, so my setup now is um, very simple, um, a uh, treated environment. But um, like a lot of engineers I know, um, have a setup in their place that when it, it um, with some people, it's like when it requires their, um, when they have to work out of their house, they do. Um, I know a few guys that will mix out of studios. They have a setup in their house for pre-mixing stuff, editing stuff, and then we'll still mix in a big room. I actually prefer to do this here because I'm comfortable working in this environment. Um, I know what it sounds like. I know um, I, I work on my own time. Um, clients are barely ever here, so which is common these days. It used to be, yeah. you know, they, people were always in your um, at the mix, like from the first time you pressed play they were sitting in the room with you which i always hated because you know they're they're watching you get a kick drum sound for like an hour or whatever and it was very bizarre because there's nothing to really look at right um so now it's mostly you know a small studio setup um nicely equipped of course but um and gear wise and lots of plugins and stuff but i'm very comfortable mixing in this environment more comfortable mixing in this environment than on a console these days so hmm, interesting. Now, when it comes to tracking, there's nowhere I would rather be than behind a big console um, with a bunch of microphones and a proper studio setup. So, uh, but the mixing environment, I actually prefer this. So hmm, that's great. Very attainable stuff. Like honestly, very very you know good gear. I, I got a lot of guitars and stuff like that, but gear that almost anybody can buy. So it's true. It's, it's all not, very accessible these days, and. Oh, yeah. You can build your own treatment and all sorts of stuff for relatively yeah, cheap. I did. <laughs> yeah, you did. Awesome. Cool. Uh, in terms of the the producing side of things, how involved do you like to get as a producer? Like, do you do you get into the songwriting stuff really deep, or like you said, you play on records? But depends on what they need. Um, there's times when uh, I might be co-producing with the band, a band called Ivory Hours, which is doing pretty well, um, from London, but done really well in, in Canada or just about to release their second record that I co-produced with the singer is absolutely a co-production. Um, sometimes it says co-produced and the, the other person did everything and the yeah. band's got their name on it, but this is absolutely a co-production. Um, there was some arrangement stuff, um, definitely getting good performances out of somebody, sonic stuff and mixing, um, right down to the stuff I, I do where um, somebody just recently, a, uh, a country artist, sort of new kind of pop country, she sent me a song and, and wanted to do this, this uh, her, a new single with me. And it was, song was written, I didn't change the song, um, but when she gave me the examples of what she wanted it to sound like, I'm like, well, this is programmed. Um, and uh, I just said, I'll, I can just do this completely myself and send you a track back and then we'll meet up at a studio. You sing it and I'll mix it. Like we, hmm. I met her the day of the, the vocal session. Wow. So, um, I mean, I literally just played everything. So there, those things are, um, it's common for me to do that. And then the stuff with Dolores, like I said, there was tons of writing. Um, there was, um, 
there was sometimes really no song at all. To be totally honest, it was like I've got this idea and it might have been two chords. Even by the time she came back, those two chords might not have even been there. But hmm. it was at least inspired by what she gave me in the first place and a quick talk about what kind of idea. But it was really up to me to do whatever the hell I wanted. Yeah. So right down, right from inception <laughs> to the mix <laughs> all the way up to literally just sitting at the back of the room and, and um, helping get the uh, the performance out of somebody. I mean, I, I generally pr uh, engineer stuff I produce two times in my life if I not engineered something I produced. <laughs> so I, I'm not that comfortable with just producing. It's interesting you said only two times because you've been doing it for so long. Were those two times, did you feel afterwards like, I will never do this again? Or was it just the situation where... No, you know what? The one time it was Richard Chickie, who's like one of the best engineers I know, um, Dream Theater and Rush and Aerosmith, Pink, all this so stuff. You're in and good Rich, hands. <laughs> yeah, and me and Rich were just asked to do a song together. There was no roles defined. Yeah. So um, it was just, we just sort of assumed positions. It was almost like when we knew each other well, and it was like, okay, who's going to do what? She's used to me calling out um, song stuff. So how about I'll take more of that side and you'll engineer. It was not really even said. It just happened. Um, and it was a blast because me and him get along so well and that worked out really well. And the the other time was the first Ivory Hours record. And it happened because um, Matt, who engineered it, um, he did their previous work. So when – and he introduced me to the band to possibly mix and then they wanted me to do more. So we kind of needed to define a line of, OK, wait a second. I'm not going to steal a gig from my friend. So who's going to do what here? So I was going to produce it and mix it. Um, and, uh, Matt was going to engineer it. So it was very weird for me to sit at the back of the room hmm. and just go, yes. Like I felt useless to be honest. So, um, they were both actually good. Like if I trust the engineer, um, I didn't mind it at all. It's just, it's not realistic budget wise these days, like to have a separate engineer, separate producer of their, of their choice in a really nice studio. So, um, you know, doing multiple things helps me. So, and I love it. I love engineering. So, yeah. Awesome. So in terms of, uh, the songs then, what do you think makes a good song? Oh, big question. I know. You know what? As long as it, um, touches somebody or like um, evokes an emotion somehow, um, and you can remember it. Like, I mean, if it, if it, um, if it gets something out of you when you listen to it, but you walk away and have no idea what you just heard, that might be interesting, um, but there's got to be something, obviously. We call them hooks, although that may be a dirty word to some people. Um, those are things we're going to remember. I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of song it is or what kind of music it is. If, if it makes you feel something, um, uh, uh, to me, that's a good song. I, I, I hate to say it, but um, I had – I wouldn't call them arguments, but discussions when I was working with Dolores um, where I'd be like, yeah, but there's no chorus. I mean – this is cool and all, but, um, there's no, there's not, there's no chorus really. And she's like, well, remember dreams. And it was a cranberry song that sold 17 million records yeah. and there's no chorus. And I was like, all right, enough said. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing would happen with, well, we can't just play the same chords for four minutes. I mean, you have to change it. And she's like, well, remember zombie that was on that same record. I'm like, okay, shit, okay, you've got me. So, and there's lots of songs like that, that there's, it, it was interesting and it, it, it pulled something out of somebody and, Sometimes it was this, in her case, I think the majority of it was the vocalist. It was her that made it interesting. If somebody else would have sung that song, it 
may have not done anything because her voice sold it. Like her voice sold something in the song. So sometimes it's a it's a the artist that can to make that song that I wouldn't say weaker song, but you know everything has to kind of come together. Um, but you just got to feel something. I mean, I can't define it. I like I like almost every style of music, and I don't know what it is that makes you just connect with something. It's that sort of connection when you hear something. That's all. Yeah, so for sure. Tough to define, of course. <laughs> What's a common mistake that you see a lot of artists making before they enter the studio? Uh, not giving up any control whatsoever. Not wanting to, like hiring a producer and then not wanting to change anything. So um, I don't know what the producer's there for at that point. Um, they don't have to listen to everything or have to change everything, but um, being too set in your ways and not just letting go and not trusting someone. Now, that could be the fault of the producer because they maybe don't feel that trust. But a lot of people, you know, let's say it's their first record or they've been making like independent records for a while, but they've never really broken out or nobody's really heard of anything. And um, I've had people say to me, like, I'm like, well, let's just get rid of that section. Well, we can't. We've always been there. And you argue and argue. And they're like, well, why are we leaving that? And they're like, well, it's always been there. And you can say, well, how's that been working out for you so far? Like, you know, <laughs> who who's bought this? <laughs> you know, and at least in maybe a sort of funny way. Um, but I think that would be not being open-minded and just, you know, you got to pick the right person to produce a record um, that has the same ish vision as you i say same ish because they're, they're going to hopefully give you some kind of other angle um that everybody has that same vision but that you can pull something um out um take something out remove something add something and everybody's completely open to it it's just being open-minded and not um being so closed off you just refuse to let any ideas happen like they think you're going to change them because they've heard stories of producers changing these bands and hmm. you know which is generally crap usually when a band's sound changed they hired that person to do that for them yeah right you know people are like well bob rock ruined metallica well n n no that, metallica that, wanted bob rock to that, ruin metallica. Concept, <laughs> right? right exactly and that was something they wanted and they liked when it was done so um it's people thinking something you're going to change them for the worse which i mean why why would you do that? Why would you make something that's terrible that everybody's going to hate? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Like people need to be researching who they're working with, right? It's like, especially these days, there's, there's with the home studio market, you can work anywhere, really. So exactly. you can work with any, anybody. So you got to know who you're working with. Exactly. Or not being prepared. I think either musically, um, I think that would be the other thing would be thinking that it's, it's really easy because everything can be fixed. If, you know, it's like going in and it, not being prepared to perform their best some mm -hmm. people just because it's so easy nowadays and everybody's done it um and everybody can record anywhere like you said and anybody can do anything so they just record crap and hope that you can fix it like trying to capture sort of lightning in a bottle sort of thing you know like an amazing performance that you can only that's the best time i've ever heard it that's you're trying to get that so you need people to be at their best you mm -hmm. know recording studio Got it, for sure. I 100% I agree with that. So uh, now let's shift over to mixing. So what's your mindset when going into a mix? Like, where do you start or how do you start typically? Um, generally, 
if I'm mixing something that I recorded, it's a bit different because if it's in the box, it's probably been in there for a while. So it's a little bit of a different process. But if I'm going to be sent something to mix, which I am often, that I didn't record, the first thing is um, listen to their rough mix because their rough mix, even though it might not be um, well, obviously you're trying to better the rough mix, but they did put those things in their rough mix there on purpose. So they, there's some sort of intention. Um, Andy Wallace of all people taught me that he mixed a record for me. And I mean, he's one of the best there's ever been. So, Mm. um, he was kept referring to my, my rough mixes. I mean, they were going to Andy Wallace. I wanted my rough mixes to be better than just quick rough mixes. So, um, Stuff was panned sometimes in exactly the same spot. Stuff was generally level-wise in the same spot. It was just sounded way better than mine did. So um, when I try to reinvent somebody's stuff when they didn't ask me to, um, they always turn it down. So if they've asked me to reinvent it, it's totally fine. But I'm telling you right now, even then, they probably don't want me to reinvent it. So the first thing I'm going to do is listen to what they've done um, and then – get myself familiar with the song and kind of start deciding on what I believe is most important in the song. Now, if it's a song with a vocalist, it's going to be the vocalist. Um, but that doesn't mean I'd start with a vocal, but there's going to be core elements, whether it's a piano and a vocal, let's say an acoustic guitar and a vocal. Um, and those kinds of, those times I might get those things up first sounding kind of good. Um, it's not start with the kick drum sort of idea. Um, because unless it's a kick drum solo, I don't see any reason to start with <laughs> the kick drum. Um, and I will pull other instruments up around it and see what's kind of confusing uh, and what's cl- uh, clashing with each other. Um, and then there might be a time then that I'll start building it from the foundation up, which would be, let's say, drums and bass first. But I will usually leave a vocal on. So if I've got a vocal at a level I think is where it should be, sounding not exactly right, but you know, a 10 minute quick EQ and something on it to give you a vibe of what it should sound like. Even when I'm getting drum sounds up, I'll have a vocal on. I'll turn it off for a bit, get drums, bass, guitar together, put the vocal back on. Cause if I start losing focus, you know, if I'm spending an hour on a snare drum, nobody cares about that. So, um, as long as it supports what's important, which would be that vocal or, you know, depending on the style of music, it might be not the vocal, but, um, and uh, once I'm into the process a little bit, as long as nothing distracts from that main thing, if I'm not distracted by a, a cool sound that distracts me from the lyric and I forget what the lyric is because this f- cool sound was neat but didn't support it, it actually distracted me, it's gone or it's at least there to support it, somehow tucked underneath. So it's, it's, a, it's never the same twice, but usually – Foundation, yeah, but after I've decided what I believe is the most important thing in that mix is to get that together quickly first. It, it all kind of ties down to what you said earlier about how you got to keep the mix in mind as you're writing the song and you're producing it. And yeah, that cool sound, like that's one of those things that I see a lot of, that's a mistake that I see a lot of bands make where they all want to have cool parts and they just lose sight of what really is the core element of the song. And and that's when you get those situations and then you get people that are upset when you cut it in the mix, right? Well, yeah, because somebody um, – it's and it's hard to tell somebody that. Like when they've got a neat riff or a neat part, that their part isn't that important because it's not supporting another guy in the band. 
And they're like, well, whoa, wait a second. I'm just as important. Well, sure, of course you are, but they're they're not necessarily listening to your hi hat pattern there. They're they're <laughs> listening to the lyric or you know, and it's letting go of stuff is really difficult. I mean, I've had string arrangements done and I've written string arrangements and I love them. And my intention is I want everybody to hear every note I put in because I'm so proud of it. But then in reality, you're like, you know what? If I turn it off, it's gone. Nobody cares. But you can't Nobody use the little intricacies. They don't really notice what's there. And I've soloed it and played it to artists and they're like, oh my God, that's what's going on. Well, if I remove it, it doesn't feel the same anymore. But I've had the same thing happen to myself where I've put in really cool parts and I've had to downplay them. They still are important. They still have their role. But if they don't support the main thing, they're useless. So um, lots of people carry that stuff a little bit. Like they hold on to that stuff a little bit too long. And then when you just mute their bass in verse two, they're like, whoa, whoa. So you you have to be careful when you're doing that. Like, you know, are you married to this? Is there anything I like, should I take stuff out? Isn't they're like, no, 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 no. Everything that's in there we want. Then that's fine. Um, but if they're giving it to you and you're supposed to wear the producer's hat a little bit, um, you gotta be a little gentle with, you don't reinvent it and pull everything out, you know? Yeah. So to kind of go along with that, then how do you go about making more of the creative moves in a mix where you're trying to do something that is a little more outside of the norm that isn't in their rough mix already, or, you know, something that you come up with that you think might sound cool. Um, I would often let them know that I'm doing something that's real, that's new. Um, and a few engineers I know would say the same thing. And, um, that if you don't have like a really amazing relationship with this particular artist or producer and you're, they're asking you to mix it, but you hear something like a little out there, um, I would mix their mix first and then get that in order. And then you find this idea. I don't go off on a tangent and lose what they gave me. I'll usually say, listen, I've done something. Um, I think it's really cool, but it might take a little bit of sinking in. So don't just say yes and don't just say no. Like let it sink in for a little bit. If you hate it, it could get better and it actually could get worse. You might real like right later realize you really, really hate this. Um, but here's the mix the way it is. And then here's an alt one I've sent out to see if, and you know, they might not like it, but they might realize that you're trying to do something that's going to make it better. And they might say, Hey man, that's not right. But I kind of like a little bit of what you did. And then you can at least rein it in. But if you just give them your whacked out idea, and a lot of people think that mixes are remixes. Like, I mean, all you're trying to do is properly put together what they recorded. Hmm. Like it took me years to figure that out. Like they're so rough, simple. <laughs> their rough mix is like gospel to me now. And it happens. And I, I understand that I have a coming at a different output. I keep going back and forth. I'm like, yeah, there sounds awful. Or yeah, their symbols are disgustingly loud or it's a, you know, really brittle vocal. But if they if that vocal's brittle, why did they do that? they liked something about the fact that it was gritty. They just didn't know how to do it. So I think that they want this like this because of like, you're kind of like interpreting their rough a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, again, they've been listening to that for possibly months. So when somebody says, Hey man, just do your thing. I realize they don't really want my thing. They just want their thing better. And as soon as I realized that, um, mixes got way, way easier to me. Like I realized this isn't my song. They just want their thing mixed <laughs> properly. And that doesn't mean that it's not fun. Um, and then when I really do hear something, I'm going to try it. 
and I haven't tried to change every one of their bloody songs. And they're like, well, this guy seems to really feel that this is necessary, and you pick <laughs> your battles, right? So it's a bit of a game and a bit of a head game sometimes, like when you sneak in your really cool idea. But um, I mean, I'm mixing a record right now that's like, or three songs of a record that that he's always like that, man, just do your thing, do your thing. And then there's like a thousand revisions. And we basically go back to his thing. And that's totally fine. But now I'm not doing it this time. I'm going to give him <laughs> his record sounding way better than his rough. And then if he says it sounds a little stale, can you try some stuff? Then I'll step out. But I'm not going to do my thing and then backtrack it like a thousand times, really just back to what he wanted, which was what he did. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I, I often wonder how much time mixers waste just trying to be, you know, out there and have their have their personal mark on a song when it's really just what the artist wants, right? I know. And, you know, people used to get sort of um, crap all over a guy like Chris Lord Algae for that. Like, oh, he just does this thing. He puts it through the same thing all the time and just cranks it out. But there's a there's a point where you realize he was hired to be to do what he's been doing. And they just want what he does on their song. So it's like I used to think the same thing. Oh, come on. He's not even stretching out or not even doing this or not even doing that. And I'm like, well, you know, he's mixed a lot of records. So <laughs> and a lot of good ones. <laughs> and people would say, you know, mix this and he's not going to turn it into something that it isn't. He's just going to do what he knows they think they, well, at least what he thinks needs to be done. And that can happen fairly quickly if you've been doing this for years, right? It's not like, okay, well, I'm going to see what I can do to change this and turn it into my own thing. Um, you're not the producer, right? If you are, <laughs> then... <laughs> it's a little different and sometimes they're looking for stuff that's different back or you know do you have discussions to say listen this some things may change um but i think those are discussions that you have with them before you start ripping stuff apart yeah i definitely agree with you on that cool so then to kind of go along with the what makes a good song what makes a good mix in your opinion it's exactly the same thing if you feel something and you are moved in the way that they intended you to be moved if it's a sad song and you are sad at the end of it if if it's aggressive and you want to punch the shit out of something when you're done then you got your job done so i think obviously along with that goes sure you can hear stuff well it sounds good there's a le there's a standard of quality there that people would expect but some of my favorite records sound odd so you know, you listen to a Dan Lanois production, for example, on a U2 record, and these are records that have, you know, 180 million records or whatever that is, <laughs> and you go, that's not a great vocal tone. It's not really a great snare drum sound, but you listen to it and think, wow, what a performance, or like how it fits is really important. So um, sometimes there's that battle with a mix where you're trying to flex your engineering muscles and get wow, am I going to show them how good I can make a drum sound? And then they get it back and they're like, can you turn that crazy, stupid snare drum down? I I can barely hear my guitar part. And you're like, shit, none of it matters. <laughs> oh, so, is it three hours on that? <laughs> true. And you, you, so it's, I think it's, if you've, I think it goes without saying it's supposed to sound good, but what the hell does that mean? So, because good is different for everybody. You know, if you listen to a David Foster production or Jack White, those aren't the same thing. And they're all good. So correct for what they're trying to do is is difficult because 
you know, some people might like a, a little rough around the edges and you've polished it too much. Um, but I think as the mixer, you should be able to, to understand their intention um, and that raw kind of thing that's there that drew you to it in the first place. If you can get that across um, and that person feels it and when the chorus comes up, they're like, wow, the hair on my arm stands up or I got goosebumps in the chorus or people like they're, you know, the whole room goes, whoa, when the chorus comes up. You're like, they don't know what you did. They don't know that 15 automation moves happened and this compressor sounded that way or they just don't care. They just know that when the chorus hit, they got goosebumps. So that means so many things that like uh, I want that to happen to me when I mix it. So if it's not happening, but the kick drum sure sounds cool, it's not good yet. So, it, you know, there's that line of sounding, wow, that sounds really good, but nobody really likes it. Like, you know, it's got to move somebody. So it's so hard to define, though. Um, so again, that takes, that's the stuff in, in my opinion that takes years. So, you know, I can, I teach people for a living and I teach people how to, you know, balance and mix out right and things to look, you know, a lot of the stuff we've just been talking about. Um, and it gets them opened up to thinking a little differently than stuff they read on gear sluts or watched on YouTube or whatever. And they're like, where somebody's saying it's all about the monitors or all about the D to A converter. And then you have to be told it's actually all about the emotion you've just conveyed. And, there's technical ways of you pulling that off, right? So um, in teaching that, I think vision like, is some of the most difficult. That's the stuff that takes years. When you hear a song and you're like, oh, I know what to do to this, and you just go right at it, and somebody's like, why did you know to do that to the vocal? And you're like, I, I don't know. Why did you know to, to write that lyric there? It's the same thing. You just kind of have a knack for it and uh, 15 years ago, I might have struggled with that, but um, it's that vision or foresight into seeing like that's what this thing's going to be when it's done. I know exactly what it is. I just have to get it there now. That's the stuff that takes a long, long time to figure out that you can't read, you can't be taught, that you just have to do it over and over and over again. And eventually you have that sort of sense, mm -hmm. I think. So, how long does it normally take you then to finish a mix? Oh, you know, if I was to sit down start to finish, I'd say five hours. You know, it used to be um, – there's that used to be that sort of standard, if you want to call it that, that was a song a day with the sort of records, bigger records, um, bigger mixers. It's about a song a day. Uh, I can do that in less. And I say five hours. Um, one song might take me two days the first mix of a record might take me because you're defining the record. Um, and then everyone after that, I mean, I've, I've done, I've taken two days on, on the first song, three days on the first song. And then I've had the rest of them. Some of them take me 45 minutes because mm -hmm. I'm importing stuff. What, like once I found what that thing's supposed to sound like doing it again, isn't that hard. So you can pull in stuff and it starts to sound really interesting right away and then get to the fun stuff, the automation stuff and stuff the emotion part of the mix. So, but if it was one song, I'd say five hours would be a pretty good average for me. And how do you know when you're done a mix? Wow. That's so <laughs> good. Um, <laughs> um, you know what? It's, it's so hard. That's the other thing that takes years. That's the other thing. A lot of young engineers, the, a mistake they make is they think it's done and it's not. And they think mastering is going to fix it somehow. Or, they 
don't know when it's done and they ruined it. Like, you know, it, it was good two weeks ago. So these days, um, it's a feeling thing. Like, um, going with what I was mixing yesterday, pulling to get, pulling together something. And I'm like, wow, this sounds good. And then I put his rough on and it was awful by the way, but it had way more energy than mine did, but it was terrible. So I'm like, oh crap. I know what he's going to say. Um, so I just wanted that same aggressive feeling and that same sort of movement without it sounding terrible. Um, and I, I kind of know now, I, and I don't know how to explain that. I, you, you just kind of like, yep, that's it. And I have sent mixes out to people prematurely, not knowing it. And they're like, you know, there's a lot of changes. And then I listen back to it and I think, wow, I was not done. Like, I don't, I don't know why I sent this to somebody. And so you can make that mistake no matter how many years you've been doing it. But um, generally, you've got a pretty good idea. And again, it's a feeling thing. You just kind of know after a while. And that is one of the things that's so difficult when you first start doing this. You just have no, you know what? You used to have to be done. Like I mixed on a console, an analog console with like 300 patch cables and all analog gear. And at the end of the day, you had to be done because you were tearing it apart and starting another one tomorrow. So there was this finality to it that doesn't exist anymore. So I used to hate that. And now I've kind of embraced it. And sometimes I mix songs for now. I get handle on it. I start getting something sounding interesting, no automation, no crazy stuff going on. I might take a version of it in my car, uh, not listen for uh, detail, just listen as a listener. And uh, wherever I'm going the next day, if I listen to it, I'll think, oh yeah, I'm on the right track. Or wow, what the hell was I thinking? Um, and uh, sometimes I'll mix in pieces like that. And sometimes that's dangerous because then you don't ever really know when you're done. So it's a feeling. I hate to keep saying that over and over again. It's like <laughs> gut. It's gut. And you eventually know when your gut's right. Yeah. Well, possibly another feeling question, but since you've been doing this for so long, at what point did you feel like you really started to be able to make good mixes? I'm still not sure I am. <laughs> <laughs> I still listen to stuff like I, st I listen to stuff now and I think that's was really good for that time. Like I still think that like I can listen to the two songs that I won the Juno for and go, I'm proud of that. There's a validation because people voted and said it was the best thing that year. Um, but I still listen to it and think, wow, is that, that's kick drum's too clicky. Or I wish the guitars were louder in the last chorus. Like if I mix that now, I destroy this. Like I, um, I would say, you know, I got validation from other people. It's really the only thing. Other people – a&R people, um, some mix engineers that I looked up to who were like, your mix is, I, I'm not doing anything different than your mix. So I don't even know why I'm mixing this. Like to hear that from somebody that I looked up to, it's like, okay, I guess what I'm doing is right. Or having a, a, a mastering engineer like Ted Jensen or somebody say, your stuff barely needed any work. Your mixes were spot on. It's little things like that that happen kind of over years that you start to go, okay, I guess it's like, cause I'm never very comfortable with any of it. Like I like it at the time, but a week later people are like, wow, that's really good. And I go, really? Cause <laughs> it's <laughs> like, I still, I don't know. I don't like, I I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Um, 
I'm comfortable with them. I'm comfortable with people hearing them now, <laughs> but I still always think they could be better. Like, um, I mean, I know I'm good at it only because I've been doing it so long. And if I haven't been, if, if people aren't pay, are paying me after this long of doing it, I must be doing something that people like. So I, I know I'm accomplishing something, but in the end, I still think like there's that endless search for something that's a little bit better than that. Like, you know, but I listen to old records that I used to love and look up to somebody else's mix. And I actually think, you know what? I could do a better mix than that now than a Bob Clear Mountain mix. I'm not saying, don't, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? At the time, there's no way in hell, but I listen to it now and I think, yeah, I know what they were doing. Like I could mix that song that way. I didn't. He did. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you could mimic it or pull it off now. And I used to think this was unattainable level of stuff. But I've heard those things so many times that they're easier. Now there's new levels of stuff that's unattainable. Like, yeah. you know. It's, it's always advancing. Always. And I don't think I'm ever going to get to the point where I'm totally comfortable with it. You know, a guitar part, a vocal part, a song. I'm always kind of questioning whether I did it right, even after it's done. Yeah. <laughs> that's I, I, not I comforting you. to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that that's, it's the reality of it, right? Like, so almost everybody I've asked on this podcast has had the same answer more or less. Like it's just, you're, you're constantly the people who are doing it as a professional job and making a living off of it. They're, they're constantly pushing themselves to, to move forward and progress. Right. And if, if you yeah. feel like you've mastered it, chances are you're probably falling behind now. Right. Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I know a couple people like that. I know a couple people that think they've got a handle on it and that's pretty much, that's it, but they don't work that often to be totally honest. Exactly. Yeah. So, What's something that you like to do with your mixes that other people might think you're a little crazy for for doing? Like, do you have a, a, like a, any wacky chains that you like to use? Or um, I put delay on literally almost everything. Really? Um, <laughs> like it gets to the point where, like, sure, like delay throws and stuff on words, or but um, drums, uh, guitar parts, everything. But no, it's happened on bass. Um, and it's usually stuff that's very difficult to hear. Um, but, um, I'm not, I'm not hugely into reverb, although sometimes stuff is soaked if that's what it requires, but, um, often, um, like depth. So creating something out of nothing, I really like to do. So, um, sort of a Brian Eno kind of thing, like taking a very simple sound, a backup vocal or something and putting it through so many chains of, I don't know, four or five harmonizers up fifth, down a fifth, up an octave through a reverb, through four or five different delays and feed, feeding all that stuff back up into itself over and over and over again to the, on the verge of feeding back. Um, when I want to create ambience in something, it's, uh, something I've done a ton of times. Sometimes it's a guitar part or an Evo part, a backup vocal, a violin. So, um, time-based, like, delay and pitch effects a lot of it but it's very very quiet <clears throat> until i turn it off and then people think whatever the hell that is turn that back on because now it sounds bland um do you so, do it just more for like depth or it's all depth yep. and it usually there's no top end on that stuff so um there'll be several delays going on that you don't know are going on on a, i mean it's very common to do it and i'm not saying i'd be unique mm -hmm. in that way but um I know that I do it and I know when I do it a lot. 
So it's a thing I'd reach for, um, distorting a lot of things. And I'm not, I'm not unique in that, um, aspect either. Um, uh, that ivory hours record we just finished. I mean, I think we distorted everything at some point. Um, and again, subtle, well, horribly distorted, but I mean, still mixed uh, low, um, to give sort of false aggression to stuff or give stuff character that it, the character's in there and those things just kind of pull it out. Right. So nothing, I don't think that other people don't do. Um, uh, you know, there's things like parallel compression on drums that lots of people do. I usually do three, four layers of it. Hmm. Um, and, um, one of them is generally distorted, but they're never, that stuff is never static to me. So a lot of people kind of do that and then just leave that stuff there. So the drums are super clicky and loud and weird sounding, you know, that stuff's automated to me constantly. Um, again, that's not unusual. Everything I've ever done, everybody else does it. So, um, I thought I invented parallel compression, um, you know, whatever, 20 years ago. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool sound, but it doesn't stand up on its own. What if I put it beside the original? And I'm like, Oh, I can hold on to this secret. And then you realize it's a thing. Um, so, you know, you may do things a little differently than other people do because you came about it your own way. Um, but you know, everybody does the same techniques. I mean, you watch like mix with the masters videos, whether it's, um, Jack Puig or Andy Wallace or Chris Lord LG or, or any of those guys or, or, or Michael Brower, they're very um, good at giving their sort of secrets away. And I've worked with those guys and they are very willing to give them up in the room too, because when they do it, it doesn't sound the same as when anybody else does it. So you set up the, exactly the same chain as so-and-so and you don't have their ears or brains. So the way you do it is your way of doing it. So I do know that when I do stuff, I think to myself, well, that's a thing I do, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, odd, really strange ringiness on a snare drum that's really buried, but only in the chorus or bizarre distortion things or those delay things. Other people do them, but I do know I have a way of doing it. That's, I think to myself, that's a neat thing. Um, but as long as it's not the same song every time, it, your technique doesn't sound the same every time. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, and I, and I think a big key to to what you said is like when it comes to the delay and distortion, all that kind of stuff. It, it's blending it subtly, right? Like not that biggest point. The last thing we want is everyone listening to this to all of a sudden be adding delay on everything and putting it at unity gain and it's blasting. <laughs> well, that's the point, and that's what's kind of funny is I know in um, where I teach at Fanshawe, we do two. It's two years, and first year a lot of that stuff isn't taught. We, I, I shy away from talking about that stuff. I'll introduce little things towards the end of the year and it starts getting them excited about next year or about, I didn't, you know, wow, I didn't know that was a part of mixing or whatever. And second year in engineering is so much subtlety. Like you're doing stuff and you have to do, you have to actually turn stuff on and off five, six, 10 times before the entire room even hears what you're doing. And so the subtleties, a whole bunch of little subtleties is what makes something interesting as opposed to one big obvious thing it's really easy to put a reverb on something but or some delay or some obvious distortion or whatever but that's what i learned from watching other people mix is these tiny little things they do that are buried um and without it it's not the same and if you do that a lot you know distorting bass i do all the time but it might be on five percent just enough to hear that tiny little thing peek out so the guy hears his bass part 
you know, yeah. And I've said the exact same thing that you just said. It's almost a disclaimer. It's like, okay, hold on a second. <laughs> sure. I distorted lots of stuff, but you can barely tell it's there. It's just to bring out a little subtle character. It's something hideous behind something really nice makes a really interesting sound. Mm-hmm. What's your approach with gain staging? Do you have any tips for that or like a, a, an approach that you always follow? In the mix aspect? Yeah. Or, in, or both. Um, nothing unusual. I mean, honestly, it's usually fairly normal. I, I, I can't think of anything. It's pretty by the book unless I want something unusual, unless I'm actually distorting something on purpose or know a piece of gear that if I push the input and lower the output, it's going to sound interesting like certain mic preamps may or certain compressors will sound really cool. But mm-hmm. generally, it's fairly by the book um, besides not p- pushing levels too much ever yeah besides that people do that too much of that you know they they think they have to push everything to the last bit which is ridiculous but no nothing nothing Mm -hmm. tricky i guess in the mixing stage you had said earlier that you tend to focus on your core elements your vocals or whatever it is do you typically aim for those to be at a certain volume when you're starting or i do but that is something that a friend of mine george sierra who's actually an mia grad he's a very very good engineer um uh, Sean Mendez and 50 cent, a bunch of stuff. Um, a very, very, one of my favorite engineers and, and, and a good friend, but one of those guys that pisses you off because everything he does is always so good. <laughs> um, and, uh, it's, um, you know, a few years back talking to him about, um, monitoring being extremely predictable and repeatable. I used to be this set of speakers, that set of speakers, that volume, quiet, loud, listen from the other room, all those things I don't do anymore. I wish I would have known that years ago is just repeatability. Um, you know, around 85 to 90 dB, my ears are flat. I'm comfortable at that volume. I know where that is on my monitor controller and I know where the vocal level is. So when I've got that monitor controller set at that exact same spot every single time and everything's metering zero, um, I know where the vocal is supposed to be. And it took me a little while to even realize that that was a thing that, you know, um, all my mixes now sound consistent for a whole record. The vocal levels, the same level all the time, like proper. I don't mean the same level, but you know what I mean? The the Mm -hmm. correct level. Um, There's not one song that has a bunch of bottom end and another song that's really loud, another song that's really quiet. If I see a really a song printed really loud, it means I probably monitor too quietly because I'm expecting the volume to be a specific volume to my ears. And it took a while to get a handle on that, sort of calibrate your room almost like they do with film. It's like it's not going to go over 85. This is where the volume is. It's not going to go over this meter, this zero. Deal with it. Like as opposed to searching for that monitor, that monitor. Oh, it sounds really good on these speakers. All you're doing is trying to make your bad mix sound better on the speakers that it sounds best on. So if I can't, if it sounds weird on one set of speakers, it's, it's a bad mix. So it's almost like forcing yourself to sit at one volume, two volumes, that one and dimmed. And sure, at the beginning of it, I want to see the bottom end. I'll crank it up to hear what the bottom end feels like. If it's kind of loud music where somebody's going to listen to it loud, I'll crank it up for a bit. I'm not sitting in the sweet spot. I'm probably walking around the room, so I'm not blasting my head off. But it's repeatability. So um, – and that vocal, honestly – it's like if I look, I could tape up VU meters and at the end of the day, look over and they're at zero. 
because you just know where the mix is right because my monitor volume has been set at that magic spot again. Like, yeah. um, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it's something that just comes from experience, really, right? Just listening to your work or, or work that you admire and, and really yeah. learning how things sound at a certain level and that's the level you work at. Exactly. I mean, yeah, and what's comfortable for you? There's no rule for that. Like, you know, I mean, I don't think anybody's comfortable at 110 dB all day, but, you know, um, sure, your ears are technically flat around 90, but whatever's comfortable for you around that area is what I would say. It's just that the mistake is that volume, that volume, this volume, turn it up, turn it down, turn the sub on, turn the sub off. Let's go to the earbuds now. We'll put my headphones on. It, that's a you're chasing your tail at that point. Well, every time you do that, you're resetting your brain, right? Like it's your brain yeah. is trying to figure out, okay, well now what am I listening to? What does it sound like on this source? And at this level, like it's impossible to to know when everything is good at that point. Exactly. So yeah, it's just a again, it's a sort of not a field thing. It's it's a learned. It's a it's just repeatable. So I've done it so many times that I know when my monitor volumes at that clicked volume that this is a good level for a vocal, and then everything's going to fit around it. Mm-hmm. So. What about with getting the low end right? Like I know that's something a lot of other people struggle with too, like getting their kick and their bass and all that kind of stuff to line up. Do you have any tips for that? Um, it's so hard. Um, you know, um, the the playing is so important in that area. Like, sure, you know, it might make it easier if it's electronically generated um, because stuff may be just lined up. Um, and I'm not talking about lining stuff up with a grid so much as if it's played right the rhythm section of a band will sound so good when they're playing together. It'll, it won't be inconsistent. One kick drum and bass sounds great. And the next hit sounds funny when the, when it's all played well, it's a hell of a lot easier to get the bottom end intact. Um, but I have this thing I do and it's probably not a good idea. So I'll tell you um, <laughs> <laughs> is I have a tendency to, feel I need to push like when I'm going to start a record I have I'm like this is going to have the most bottom end and the and the biggest mix of anybody's that's ever uh, the, you know in the history of modern recording <laughs> <laughs> and I keep trying to push 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 to a level that you know I'll listen to it somewhere else and thinking yeah no I'm pushing it too much and I always go back down to what I just know is normal um like I'm trying to push my own boundaries to be I want somebody to listen to it and think, how did you get that much bottom end on that, but not have it sound over the top? I'm always trying to do that. Maybe I shouldn't, probably, I guess. Um, But there's no trick to that besides understanding the environment you're in. Like a lot of engineers, if they're mixing in an environment that's not very good, speakers that are not very good, a room that's not very good, and cranking the volume all over different spots – I'm using headphones a lot. The bottom end's never going to be right. So I find if I have to turn a mix up to get the bottom end right, that I question why I just turned the speakers up. So it's again, it goes back to monitoring volume. It's going back down to that thing. It's like, damn you, if you can't get this to sound good at this volume, you still suck. Like you're not there. So it's just that repeatability thing. I mean, it's not you know, I helped people before with mixes and every time it's a different answer with bottom end. It's like, oh, you're, you're, you've added too much in, you know, low end in the kick drum. The bass guitar is more important in this song. So let's make the bass guitar big. The kick can sound smaller behind that. Um, or let's say the bass is 
a different tone. The kick drum being really big and open can work in the song. So every time it's a different answer. So it's a different, difficult thing to to answer besides that repeatability thing again. It's just that simple, I know what my room sounds like, I know what the bottom end sounds like in here, and I know it's translated properly. So at that volume, if you can't get that in order, it's not right yet. So it's not a very good answer, but... No, it, make, it, it makes sense. Like the concept of keeping your mixes all at the same volume or working at that consistent volume is is so important. And I think so many people forget about that. And it... it your, all your answers are based around that right now, right? So like that says something about yep, the importance yep. of it, right? Yeah. Um, so one thing, we all learn from trial and error and making mistakes in the studio. Do you have any, can you think of any examples of something that's happened in a session where something just went to shit and you had this like kind of like aha moment where you realize, you learn something from it? There's so many of them. <laughs> Honestly, there really is. Like things I've done or things I've watched people do, um, you know, there's a few technical things like um, not committing stuff. I, I know that that would be easy to um, – but I – see, I, I grew up in a time when you had to commit to stuff because I only had four tracks, eight tracks, 24 tracks, or 16, and 24. So I still commit things. Like if, if it's not going to be in the bridge, don't play the damn piano in the bridge. Play it where it's supposed to – get the sound you like that fits as you're recording but I've never not done that. So um, I know a lot of people don't because they just feel like, well, it doesn't really matter. I can do that later. Um, some young engineers are not working at a console. They're just working with mic preamps and they have no availability to EQ something in the way in. Um, that's hard for me. Um, so then again, I've committed, and I'm going to say the exact opposite. I've sometimes committed stuff way too much. So I've thought, wow, the vocal sounds really cool, disgustingly compressed like that. It probably will stay that way. And then later went, what was I thinking that day? <laughs> like, <laughs> So if I'm going to do something a little ridiculous to something, I'll cover my bases now, mult it, split it, record two tracks of it. One's clean, one's ridiculous. You know what? I'm usually going to stay with the ridiculous one because the singer sings to that sound or it molds itself to the song and you usually stick with that. But committing to something too much that I shouldn't have or, but not committing. Those are things, but the, uh, the majority of the stuff is personal. It's like, um, watching people or doing it myself, saying something at the wrong time, speaking up when I shouldn't butting in when, I, when people are working out something and just, or just standing back and letting them work out a part, um, forcing an issue, forcing a part, um, forcing my opinion on them when this is the wrong time. Those are the the more things that I've learned when to step in and say something and when to think, no, this is the time when I'm supposed to just sit back and let something, let them work through this problem they have on their own or shut them down because they're going to get angry if they go at this longer. Most of it's that stuff, but there's not one specific thing. It's like so many tiny little things that you watch a day go bad on you when one thing gets said or done at the wrong time and the whole session goes south. Like I've, so too many things to mention, but it's almost all personal and mm. people skills stuff that, um, again, I used to do or I've done now or, um, or I, I don't do anymore, but, um, I just avoid now. So that's a, that's a tough one. Well, the people skill thing is, is, 
one of those things that isn't often discussed, but it's a huge part of working. Yeah, in, most, in any industry, really. Oh, yeah. Most people just talk about the experience and, wow, that was great working with that person. Like, do you want to be in the room all day with that person for a long time? Um, no. Then you're probably not going to work with that person again, regardless of how their song sounded. So, you know, most people that are really good engineers, they're also really good people to be around, most of them. And they're a lot of fun to be around. And they're like, they're, the experience is really amazing. And Th those people realize that they're not there to make their record. They're there to facilitate a, a process all the way through and make something same with the producer and just make the process really fun and easy and not take the glory. Like, you know, you know, that was my idea. No, nobody cares. Just, you know, that's one thing, you know what, that I should say that that's, um, it's not that glorious of a job engineering or producing. Sometimes you're almost sometimes giving, them the impression that they did everything so it was their idea it's almost like you're planting a seed that you know is going to turn into the idea that you have but you don't need to be the one that claims they came up with it you don't need to be the one that says you know your vocal was out of tune before i fixed it it's like you're there to make them king so it's like everything they do is um everything you do is there to facilitate them coming across as really good so the people that have a problem sometimes in a, in a session are the ones always trying to let everybody know that they're the ones that did it. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, we all know, like we know what the job entails. You don't need to tell everybody that you got that out of them. Or if it's a great record, everybody knows that you did it. Do you have any special tools or tips that have helped you with the workflow of your mixes? Yeah. You know, it'll be the opposite of what some people say is I never listen to anybody else's music. Hmm. So I, I I don't reference music, I hate it, and I don't doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I've tried it, and every single time I try to do it, it screws me over because it's not the same song as mine. Um, it's in a different key, it's a different vocal, it's a different lyric, like everything they're trying to do. I listen to if I'm going to mix a country record, I will listen to a lot of that music for a while, but never compare back and forth. So a lot of people will tell you the opposite and say, you know, a lot of referencing of other people, st stuff that's in the same genre. And I, I will never do that in a room. I, I just can't, it, it screws me up. It, it, <laughs> like it, I don't understand what I'm like when I go back to mine, it sounds so different that I start second guessing everything I've done. But if I've listened to a lot of that style of music leading up to a record, I'm going to mix that's that whole tones ingrained into my head as opposed to like a being between my mix and so-and-so's mix, um, workflow wise. And of course, again, going back to the volume thing, I mean, workflow, um, if your volume's not that loud, you'll be able to mix all day and for many, many days and many years. So, um, I've made those mistakes way too many times. It, it's fun to listen loud. And if I love a song, I love to listen to it loud. So it's difficult sometimes for me to not do that. So it helps me keep perspective. So I keep talking about personal skills and volume. Um, <laughs> hey, those things are important. <laughs> they're, they're more important to me than anything, um, than any trick or whatever, because the balance is so important that way. Well, I, I agree with you. And on the personal skills side of things, like you could be the greatest engineer in the world, but if you're a dick, no one wants to work with you, right? So no, never. And sometimes... 
you know, people learn that early on and change, but some, you're just, sometimes you're just born a dick and you're just always are a dick. <laughs> yeah. I could tell who those, you know, I, I've had conversations with students and I've told them you're, you got to stop this or people don't want to be in a room with you. And some of them have, by the way, and they turn it around and they're working and others, they, they, and some people have been too reserved, almost too quiet and too out of the way and not promoting yourself enough and not showing you're good enough. So that's also, there's a, there's a line you ride between, Hey, look at me and, um, uh, not anybody ever noticing you ever. Yeah. Like, there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. Yeah. There's also a fine line between shutting the hell up and, and nobody ever noticing you even existed. Like you've got to be, you still have to be obvious to people. Like your work ethic should do it. Your work should do it. But yeah, you got to know what you're doing, but nobody else wants to know about it. <laughs> For sure. So there's a lot of people that are listening to us that maybe in the early stages of their careers. What advice do you have for someone who's just getting started? Oh, you know, a, a couple of things. I would, one of the things would be um, you, you don't want to get down and think that what people would call rejection or stumbles, like things in your stumbling blocks in your career are failures. If I don't know how you actually turn that around to be totally honest, but if you're the type of person that gets down a lot from, Oh man, they didn't like my, they're not going to use my mixes or they're not even going to release this album or it's, I'm having trouble getting this work or, you know, it doesn't feel like I'm ever going to get a break. Those kinds of things. Yes, it's going to happen and you're going to feel that way a little bit, but, um, you, every one of these things that are a positive like if you got to be able to pull something positive out of any experience, even if it's a bad experience and think, wow, I'll never do that again. Um, because I've had people say to me, wow, it's, after this long and so many failures, like things along the way that kind of took you down. It's amazing. You kept doing it. And it was like, what? Like it didn't dawn on me that they, I had ever failed at anything because to me, we did a good record. Band was dropped and the record never came out, but I got paid and, I think I did really good work and let's move on. Like it never. So th that's one thing is not getting too down because this is a hard industry to be in. Like it's never been easy. People keep talking about like the music industry and how difficult it is and these days and, and being in a studio and all that. That's fine. But there's a reason there used to be 25 brand new um, assistant engineer positions every year in Toronto. It's because 25 people quit. There wasn't 25 brand new jobs every year. Like mm -hmm. it's a hard industry. They would, it was easier to get the job then, but more people just realized quickly that they hated it. They just didn't have the stomach for this. So more people early on are being not weeded out by like during the school process, if they go that route are realizing this is really hard. And do I even have the stomach for this? Like, it's not a very family friendly industry. Um, <clears throat> it's like a lot of time you have to love doing this. Um, if you're like, you know, if somebody says to you like, Hey, do you want to come to the studio this weekend? You're like, Oh, my girlfriend's coming into town. There's nothing wrong with that. There really isn't, but you might not have, you may have just wrecked an opportunity. Um, so seizing opportunities when they come up and I've given them to students before and they've taken them and others haven't. And you kind of go, wow, I just gave you a fairly large opportunity and you kind of screwed this up. 
I'll give them another one, of course, if they think they're really, but it's, it's hard, this industry. So you really have to love this. And the other thing is obviously taking advice from people. I mean, you're never as good as you think you are, or maybe you're better than you think you are in fact, sometimes too, but, um, you never stop learning. So, um, I love this job and I love, that's why I like teaching people because I like talking about it and I like, um, people, the looks on people's faces when you realize that they just learned something for the first time and they think it's amazing. Like, I mean, it's, but you never stop that. Like, I mean, talking to friends of mine or other engineer colleagues or producers and stuff, I love talking to them because you're always learning interesting things, not techniques per se, but just, I don't know, just talking about it and never, you never stop learning. So it's, it's a not getting down is the, the biggest thing. And don't be a dick. <laughs> it's the don't golden burn, rule. Don't burn bridges. You just that person could end up being like the head of a record company one day or be the manager of a band you really like or you know, don't take abuse, but don't burn don't burn bridges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very important. What about with getting new clients? Any tips or advice you'd give for someone who's in the early stages of getting their studio started and all that stuff? I would have to say, you know, you're going to have to do some stuff for free, but don't do a lot of stuff for free because if they just want free work, they just wanted free work. So, um, I don't do it anymore, but it wasn't that long ago that if somebody said, would you do like a test mix for us? I'd say, sure, I'll do one mix, but I'll do one. And if you use it, you're paying for it. And from that point on, you're going to pay me to do the work. But I've done lots of times. I've really wanted to work with a band and said, listen, this isn't going to cost you much, or I'll do this one for free. Um, because you know, you can pull it off and you know, you can win them over and then they realize your value and you know, you don't, and also don't overprice yourself, but don't undervalue yourself either. I think, um, once you do a couple of projects that are pretty good and I mean pretty good because you really wanted to do them and you put your all into them. Um, the work comes fairly fast because that band tells that band and that band tells that band and you know. Um, it's word of mouth is everything. So once you get that opportunity, like getting, finding the clients is that first one or two is going to be the most difficult part. And that's convincing somebody that they need to actually hire an outside person to go in, or maybe you own a small studio that, you know, that sort of thing that you should be able to do this over top of other people. Um, and again, freeze. Okay. For like one or two songs to win them over. But if they're going to actually use it, this is what it's going to cost. So it's a trial. It's not free work. Um, it's, you know, don't, and don't undervalue yourself. They didn't want you, you know, they, but I've had, I've known too many people to overvalue themselves too early too, and say like, you know, I'm worth this much a song. And you're realizing, wow, I mean, that's what, that's what the big guys charge. And you just got out of school. So there's, you know, there's a balance there, of course, but you're worth something. Yeah, that's a very good point. So we got to start to wrap up, but uh, how can people follow you online or get in touch with you if they'd like? You know what? Mostly on Facebook because I'm updating like my old website now just takes you to my Facebook page because I'm updating it constantly was a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's you get to a certain point when you've done this work a lot 
um, that all they do is want, they just want to Google you. And if they can find some way of getting a hold of you, that's all they wanted anyway. So, um, having a website that with the cool picture of myself and, um, <laughs> a bunch of like audio examples and that kind of stuff is a little less necessary now for me. So, um, uh, a couple of years ago, I actually pulled the website, um, and just was like, I still have the domain danbroadbeck.com, but it literally Google my name and you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and everything. And somebody just finds me and starts talking to me. To be honest, most people are that way. Even people with a website, most people contact them through social media almost, almost a hundred percent of the time. It's the easiest way, to be honest, right now. Everybody's connected, right? That's right. <laughs> awesome. And uh, last question, any cool projects that you're working on right now that you feel like you want to plug? Um, you know what? I would say the record I just finished, and that's Ivory Hours. Uh, the, the record's called Dream World, and I believe last Tuesday the single came out called Dream World. Um, it's a great record. Um, I think it's a cool choice for a first single, although I don't think it's going to be the biggest single. Um, and, uh, great indie band. They've done everything on their own and they look like they're not an indie band. I think that Luke, the singer should write a book on how to be an indie band. <laughs> um, they've done very well for themselves and they've done everything themselves so far to the point where people are interested in this band now, but still shying away from giving up all that stuff. But it's unbelievably good record. There's only 10 songs on it, which I think is amazing because it's 10 extremely good songs. Um, I think it's a great sounding record. I know I engineered it, but I'm very proud of the the sound of it. It's interesting. It's a little darker. It's a little dirtier than I would normally do. Um, so that would be the biggest one is, is Ivory Hours. I think it's a, 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 a lot of people love that band. And they say stuff like, even though I don't normally like this kind of music, and then I ask them, what kind of music is this? And they always go, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like quirky pop, but it's not pop, but it is pop, but unbelievable great players, yet simple, great lyrics, great. It's ever, It's great. It's really, really good record. And they're a band from London, which is really cool to be on the ground level again with like a band starting out. Like when I did their first record, because um, so many years I worked, I didn't do, I lived in the city, but didn't work with any bands from the city. I still barely do, but um, a lot of my work comes from other places. But uh, yeah, definitely should check that record out. Awesome. Will do for sure. Well, thanks so much for being on here. I think you shared a ton of great wisdom. It was a lot of fun. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. So that was my chat with Dan Broadback. I think he shared some really awesome advice. I love how we talked about the social side of being in the studio because I think a lot of times we all get hung up on the technical side of it, talking about gear and all that kind of stuff. But really, at the end of the day, your social skills are really what's going to help you the most in this industry. So I love how we talked about that. And I thought that his stance on monitoring was really, really useful as well. And I know that personally, once I kind of took on that same approach where you know I listen at certain volumes only it's really helped me with my mixes as well and uh, I find my mixes are translating a lot better on speakers these days too so really great advice and I highly recommend that you try all that out and so that's it for this interview guys and if this is your first time hearing about master your mix please make sure to check out the website masteryourmix.com 
And at the top of the page, there's a link to download your free copy of my Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, which is a guide that I've created to help you with EQing and using compression in your mixes. I talk about how to use it on a variety of different instruments throughout your mix so that you can create better results faster and get your mixes to a point where they're sounding really clean and really polished. So make sure to check that out. And if you like what you heard on this episode, please make sure to go onto iTunes and subscribe to this podcast and leave a comment and a review. By doing that, it really helps us get exposed to more people so that we can keep this podcast going and so that you can continue to learn about mixing and get answers to the questions that you have about learning how to improve your mixes. And speaking of which, if you have any questions that you'd like to have me answer on the podcast, please shoot me an email. The email address is questions at masteryourmix.com. Just shoot me an email letting me know about the biggest challenges that you're facing currently with your mixes and what questions you might have around that. And I'll work my hardest to make sure that you get an answer either through this podcast, through interviews with other engineers, or on my website through my video tutorials that I make as well. So that's it for this episode, guys. I really hope you enjoyed it, and I can't wait to talk to you in the next one. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.